pomeriggio. Okay, just as a backdrop tonight, let's start with some of the words from the first ever evangelistic sermon preached in the Christian church. Had to be the first one because the church had only been going for about five minutes after the Holy Spirit had come down on the Pentecost. And uh, Peter stood up and told people what was going on, and this is part of what he said from Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is, with us, is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on earth that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. And uh, in the last uh, week or so, we've been looking at the great question of what, what was the point of the cross? We know, don't we, that in, in Roman days, in the time of Jesus, the cross was one of the most ignominious ways you could possibly die. Billy Graham says, and I've got no way of proving otherwise, that it was the most cruel judicial death that's ever been part of uh, a legal system anywhere in the world. Well, we've found all sorts of colourful ways to get rid of people we didn't like, so I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly it's up there with, with uh, most of the cruel forms of death, the most cruel you could get. We know, too, that apart from the Romans feeling it was shameful and ignominious and must never be done to a Roman citizen, the Jews quoted their own scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and they applied that to crucifixion. And yet... In the very first Christian uh, preaching of all that we've just looked at, you see how much the crucifixion is referred to. Right at the end of it, Peter says, Jesus, whom you crucified, and he's now Lord in Christ. And so Peter's talking about the fact that the cross was a triumph, not a defeat. That because Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, the cross was something you could actually glory in. Now, we saw last week that that's not the case it is for a lot of people nowadays. Look back and say, how barbaric, nails blood. Oh, the sort of thing that's in that movie, The Passion of the Christ. That is horrible. And it shouldn't be done to anybody. And the very idea that God had something to do with it, that God is behind it, that's a horrible thought. Yeah, we've got the thing up. Can we get the, the 
screen on as well back there? Or it doesn't matter. I've got it here. It's all right. So uh, what was the point of the cross? What was it all about? Um, we're, we're going to try and put a couple of videos in tonight, whether it works or not. It did last week, so we're going to try. And uh, this is just a reminder of the, the basic question that we put last, last week. There's a nice little video, I think, that gets across. Um, here we go. You're in a conversation and someone says, Why would God punish Jesus for what I did? It's barbaric and abusive for God to require blood sacrifice from his own son for sins Jesus didn't even commit. It sounds like cosmic child abuse. What would you say? Imagine your house is burglarized, and after catching the thief and obtaining a confession, the authorities deliver him to a magistrate. On the day of sentencing, as the guilty man awaits his deserved fate, the judge unexpectedly summons one of your innocent neighbors and sentences them to jail to serve the penalty that the thief deserved. Would it be fair to punish one man for the crimes of another? If it's not, how can we call God loving and just if he punished his son Jesus for our sins? To many, this sounds entirely unfair. And they're right. They're right. It would be if Jesus were just an innocent bystander. But we made the point last week, he wasn't. If the Bible is right, Jesus is God himself. And so when God allowed Jesus to go to the cross, it wasn't picking on somebody random and saying, you will do, you can suffer instead of them. Um, and the video that we've just been watching a bit of goes on to say this, it is impossible to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. We mistake Jesus for a mere man. It makes sense only if Jesus is God himself. So that what happened on the cross wasn't just the nails and the blood and the crown of thorns and the spear in the sides and all of the rest of that. What happened was much more important than that. For the first time ever, it's eternity. The Father and the Son, both of them, persons of the Godhead, were separated from one another. They'd been in perfect, total unity from time immemorial before time itself. And now there was a break in that relationship. And that, of course, is why Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just saying, Oh, God has forgiven me and forsaken me and I don't know what's going on. He, he was quoting the Old Testament scriptures and saying, This is something that is being fulfilled right now. In fact, when you look at the things that Jesus says when he's hustled through uh, those trials uh, on the night before and, and half stupefied with all the treatment he's getting. Uh, uh, is, 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 is only dimly aware of what's happening to him. He keeps on doggedly quoting scripture because that's the one thing that's keeping him going. He knows that it's God's will. It's not what he would choose where he allowed in his, his, his purely human self to, 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 to take it on, but he's, he's committed to doing the Father's will. And if that means being separated from his Father, then the cost of our forgiveness is awesome. It's not just a death on a cross. It's much more than that. It's the Father and the Son being separated from one another while he is made sin for us so that we can be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what's really happening. And so the video goes on like this. Let's return back to that room where the thief who burglarized your home is about to be sentenced. This time the judge, rather than summoning your innocent neighbor, steps down from the bench and approaches the burglary. He tells the thief that he, the judge, will serve the penalty the thief deserves. Then he hugs the pardoned man and tells him he is free to go. This version of the sentencing here sounds even crazier than the first. But it's not crazy because it's unfair. 
It's crazy because from the thief's perspective, it's too good to be true. That, my friends, is what God did for us on the cross. Our situation is like that of the thief. We're fallen, human creatures standing before a perfect, holy creator. We have repeatedly broken the moral law in one way or the other, in small missteps or in broader leaps. We deserve to be punished for our crimes, but our judge, the creator of the universe, is willing to step down from the bench in the form of a bondservant to pardon us, taking the punishment we deserve on himself. So if that's the real story of the cross, how do we explain it to other people? We talked a bit about the, the, the four things that people get wrong in their heads that take them off in the wrong direction last week. Now we've got to do what we've done with these other questions and have a look first of all at scripture. What are the key passages that would help us explain what Jesus was really doing on the cross? And then second, what are the three points we should keep in the back of our mind as arguments we can use to come back with? And third, we're going to have a look at the end at how you return the serve. How do you turn it into something positive? So it's not just a case of answering the question and then him coming up with another one, but a case of going on the attack, as it were, and saying, look, what else could possibly be? Isn't this the most wonderful thing you've ever heard? So those are the three things we'll be doing in the next 20 minutes or so, and uh, we'll see how that goes. First, what key Bible passages should you know? Well, I want to suggest four. There was one that we based it on pretty much last time, which was 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think that's really useful because that's the passage where the Apostle Paul talks about what he and the other apostles are there to do. And he says they're there to be advocates for Jesus Christ, to beseech people in Christ's stead, in the place of Jesus, be reconciled to God. If it's true that Jesus has paid this ultimate price so that humans and God can come together again, can have a family relationship with one another, then it's the job of the apostles to go and tell people about that. And if you look at those videos, you see um, all kinds of useful points you can you can see. Look, this is what the Bible really teaches about that. Then there are three other passages as well. And these ones I've taken straight from Romans. <laughs> there is a way in which people are often trained to show their faith from the Bible to non-Christians just going through the book of Romans. It's called the Roman Road. And this is a kind of mini Roman road, if you like. If you want the full version, you'll find it in all sorts of places on the internet. And it's quite useful because, uh, as uh, I'll say in a moment, if you're prepared to mutilate your Bible, you don't even have to remember the verses. They'll be right there every time you turn it up. I'll just tell you what I mean about that in a moment. But let's have a look at the first of those. Second Corinthians chapter 5. This was a passage, if you remember. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded that this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Jesus' death covers the sin of everybody in the world. Everybody who's prepared to turn to him and believe is accepted. Whoever comes to him will never be cast out. One died for all, and his death, the death of the only perfect human being who ever lived, was enough to cover everyone's sin and create pardon for everybody. And he died for all, so that those who would live, who live, would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was on their behalf. In other words, it's not just a, a get out of jail free card. It's something that's supposed to change your life as a result. And you live for him instead of just living for whatever it was you were living for before. So if anyone is in Christ, famous verse, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. This is not something you do for yourself. You don't clean up your act. You don't offer God some kind of bribe. You simply accept the free gift he's given you. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the real story of the, Christ, the cross. It was God himself 
in the person of Jesus who was dying in our place, not counting our wrongdoings against us. So I think this passage is useful and a good base passage because there are two things at least that stick out to, to me from it. First of all, he died for all that those who live would no longer live for themselves. What that's saying is that the cross is not just a way of getting us off the hook. You take Jesus' salvation and then you've got your ticket to heaven and all of the associated benefits. It's not as cold and formal as that. No, it's not a case of, oh, I'm free. I can live how I like now, as Paul goes on in the book of Romans to explain. Just because you've been forgiven your sins, that doesn't mean you can behave however you like. You're now a member of God's family. You're a new creation. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And you'll be a very unhappy Christian if you never listen to what he's prompting you to do. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. And as we saw last year when we were going through it all, that really means as many as are dragged along by the Spirit. There'll be things that we want to do which are completely wrong, and the Holy Spirit will get away and say, no, you're not doing that way, you belong to Jesus now. And so now we live no longer for ourselves. So it's not simply a way of getting out of the blame. It's not simply a way of somebody innocent dying so it's can, we, we don't have any implications for our lives. There are plenty of implications for your life when you become a Christian, and you need to re- realise that. This passage seems to me that. The other good thing that the passage said, well, it says lots of good things, but the other important thing is this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, it was God himself taking our place. Jesus is not just some unfortunate victim that God has picked on, but he's God himself dying for us. So that's the basic passage, but we spoke a lot about that last week. Let's have a look at the others. I've suggested Romans chapter 3, verses 20 to 24, because this is one that talks about sin, about the guilt of the whole world before God. At this point, Paul's talking to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome and saying, look, neither of you has an advantage over the others. Because according to the Bible and according to what we see in nature around us, everybody stands guilty before God. We did say last week that one of the things that makes people query the cross and trivialise it is that they don't understand just how important sin is. So this is a good passage to have ready at your fingertips, simply because people need to understand that or they'll never see what the cross is all about. And Romans 3, uh, 20 to 24, after a a passage in which Paul quotes all kinds of verses from the Old Testament in a big long string that just show what God thinks of human morality, he says this, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. When we look at what God expects from us, when we look at how we were made to behave, created by him, and we look at our own conduct, it shines a light on the way we are that makes us think, this is dreadful. And when the Apostle Paul says later on uh, in his letters, to me, who am the chief of sinners, was this grace given? The chief of sinners? He'd been a Pharisee. He'd lived the most religious life possible. Okay, he'd persecuted Christians, but that's because he was trying to be faithful to God. The chief of sinners. And uh, you might imagine Paul is saying that to say, oh, I'm such a terrible person. So the other people say, no, 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 Paul, you're not. You're all right, really. We like you. You're okay. But no, he really means it. I am the chief of sinners. I persecuted Jesus because something in my own sinful, prideful heart, arrogance made me miss out completely on what Jesus had done for me and on what he was doing in, in the Christians I saw. I hated them. Rather than seeing the wonder of what God was doing and putting their lives together and changing them into new people, I'm the chief of sinners, all right. And the fact is, and I think every Christian in the world who's got a real experience of Jesus Christ knows this, the more you live with Jesus, the more you start to realise the depths of your own lostness. 
And uh, it's a good job, as somebody once said, that God doesn't just show us exactly what needs to be put right in us the moment we become Christians. Because if we saw it all straight away, we'd probably give up on the, on the spot. And so God gradually reveals more and more of the wickedness and deceptiveness of our own hearts, of the reality of our entanglement in a power that we cannot struggle free from so we can understand the depths of what he's set free from and so that it can be different. Now, apart from the law, Paul goes on, the righteousness of God has been made to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And he says, there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the answer for all of us is the same thing. All of us are justified freely through his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I think there are four things in there that, that stick out to me, and that's why I've highlighted those words in there. The first thing is, it makes the point very, very clearly, doesn't it, that nobody lives in the way they were designed to live. We all have an idea in our heads, Christian and non-Christian alike, of the way that human beings ought to behave. Might differ on some of the details, but we basically have ideals about honesty and truth and faithfulness and love that the whole world would subscribe to pretty much. The trouble is that the whole world is unable to live up to it. And uh, if there is one thing that just about everybody would agree on, it is that the world is in a, a mess and we are responsible for making it that way. None of us live in the way we were designed to live. The second thing that this passage says is that God has been planning this forever. The cross was not some sudden panicky plan B. It wasn't God saying, oh, this is not working out, they're not behaving, we'll have to send somebody to die for them. It says that uh, uh, the law and the prophets right through the Old Testament point forward to the coming of Jesus. Point to what he's going to be like. What he's going to do when he dies on the cross. And 700 years before Jesus came along, Isaiah was composing those servant songs in the book of Isaiah that talk not only about the greatness of God's greatest servant, but also about the way he's going to suffer and bear our sins on in himself. The way he's going to, 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 to bring us back, we who have gone astray like sheep. It's, it's there hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus arrives. And so this is something, as Peter stresses in the sermon we've read well, that God has been planning for centuries and centuries. This is part of the only way to solve the human problem. Third thing that's said here is that there's nothing for us to do but simply trust. <laughs> and if you're trying to explain what the cross is about to other people, it's important that they say what they have to do about it. God does not demand payment from us. He doesn't want us to set us right by ourselves because we never could. And only Jesus could pay the price for us. Fourth, it says it's a free gift as a result. Through Jesus, uh, all are justified free by his grace through the redemption that came in Jesus. He bought us back. He paid the price and for it's possible for us to be forgiven. So that's a good passage to have. Now, um, I know that uh, I'm suggesting passages here and I'm, I'm not giving proof texts as such because I think one text is often a little bit too, not quite enough for people to get the sense of, of what you're, you're trying to get across. But to know where you're going next, one of the things I find helpful is just to write something in the Bible. <laughs> and so if I was going to do this, I'd be highlighting that verse so I could find it easily or those verses. And I would also write, this is a sneaky bit, in the margin, where the next one is. 
so that I don't have to remember. <laughs> I can just have a signpost right there in my Bible. It takes me there. If you don't have enough space in the text, you can just put it in the margin, up sideways or something like that. But one way or another, the one leads you on to the next. And we've, we've only got three out of Romans. Normal Roman road is six or seven or whatever, but these three are fine. That's the first one. The second one I've suggested might be Romans 5, 6 to 8, which talks about us being without power, <laughs> like a broken down car. And it says, you see, just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, there's so much in that passage, but there are at least three key things you could get out of it. The first thing is to say, yes, it's unfair. Like they were saying in that first video clip. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody dying in my place. That's completely unfair. That's wrong. It shouldn't happen. And uh, at the time that when we were powerless, Christ died not because he thought we were nice, not because we were superb people. He died for the ungodly. There was no reason why that should happen, except in the purposes of God, it was all the time. It's unfair. But second point, Jesus chose it. <laughs> this is not something that God invented on Jesus I have a job for you. You've got to go down to earth and die. Okay? I'll raise you from the dead after, but this is something you've got to do. Oh, please, do I? Yes, you have to. No, that's a completely false picture of God, isn't it? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. What clearly Paul is saying there is, what did Jesus agree to this for? Clearly, there was some motivation in him. He wanted to do it. And other passages, of course, in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame, endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's set at the right hand of God. It's pretty clear in scripture after scripture, isn't it, that this is something that Jesus was willing to do because he could see what was going to have to happen as a result of it. And Isaiah 53 prophesies, doesn't it? He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He'll look back on what's happened because of his sacrifice and he will see such a triumph coming out of it. Yes, there was that human moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, God, if there is any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But he says, yeah, not I will, but yours be done. If this is the only way, we're going for it. And he goes right through. The, the, the whipping and the scourging and the, the crown of thorns and the trials before Pilate and before Herod Antipas and, and all of the, the agony of the cross because he knows it's worth it. He's going to achieve something he really wants to achieve. And the third part of Romans 5, 6 to 8, seems to me, is that it makes the point that the love that God shows in forgiving us is actually Jesus' love too. And Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them right through to the bitter end. And it's not that God loves us, so he seeks Jesus a sacrifice. It's that Jesus and God, who are the same in the Godhead, with the same motivation, the same will, the same direction, they agree in a love for us that drives Jesus to the cross. So, that's the second passage, and the note I would then have in the margin of the Bible would be Romans chapter 8, <laughs> because that's a fantastic passage, isn't it? And what it talks about is the advantage that we get from the cross. Romans 8, 31 to 35, and you could quote a lot more of this, couldn't you? What then shall we say in response, in response to these things? God is for us who can be against us. 
If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God's made the ultimate gift to us already. So what's he going to hold back from us? And he goes on to say it's God who justifies. It's Jesus Christ who died who will not condemn us. And uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know the passage. I don't need to go through it with you. But what it basically says is that the cross wasn't, as people like Richard Dawkins would say, about jealousy, about a bad-tempered God who said somebody must be punished because my dignity is affronted. It's not about anger, that God just loses control and throws his toys out of the pram. It's not about payback. Somebody has sinned and I demand satisfaction. It's not about torture. It's not because God is bloodthirsty and likes nails and innocent blood. It's not about sadism. It's not about vindictiveness that God really hates us and so he takes it out on Jesus instead. It's about love. <laughs> it's about the fact that the love of God comes flowing to us through the cross and the resurrection in a way we've never experienced before and certainly don't deserve to experience. And so the cross was a tremendous symbol of hope and promise to the early Christians rather than just a shameful fact about the way that their, their leader had been executed. Because through it shines the love of God. And that's why Paul can say at the end of Galatians, let me never boast about anything except at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cross is the ultimate proof of the love that God has for us. And the, the cross wasn't just a commercial thing. The bill is paid, you can go away free now. It didn't just close an account. It opened the door into a whole new life, a way that we can be transformed bit by bit into the likeness of Jesus and could come to know our Father better and better as his adopted children right with the day of our ultimate adoption. It's so different from any other religion. <laughs> this young guy died at the age of 34, tragically, just a few years ago. Stomach cancer, they removed his whole stomach, but he wasn't able to survive. He'd had an interesting career up to that point, though. Brought as one of the brightest young Pakistani Muslims in California, he had gone to university as a, a, a fervent Muslim apologist, and he made friends there with a Christian who argued back, <laughs> and they started a discussion that went on for some years, he was in his mid-twenties, uh, which was just him looking at Christianity and the other guy looking at Islam. And he wrote a book uh, later on called Seeking Allah, finding Jesus about what had happened to him. He became a Christian. He turned his life around. And Nabil Qureshi became a powerful, powerful Christian apologist. To say he died young, leaving only three books behind him. But his videos are still some of the best watched on, on, on YouTube amongst Muslims as well as amongst Christians. And in one of them, he talks about how different this view of a God who loves people and gets involved in the messiness and pain and heart of the world is from the Muslim idea of Allah. Let's see if it works. The way Islam teaches God's character, his being, is very different from that of Christianity. Of course, the Christian God is triune. The Christian God is a father, an absolutely perfectly loving father. The Christian God is willing to enter into this world and suffer alongside his creation. The Christian God is willing to forgive us of all our sins by paying the penalty himself. In all of these ways, he is very different from the Muslim God. The Muslim God is transcendent, in fact, unknowable. Chapter 5 of the Quran says that he remains behind a veil, as if it were, and it's not meet for him to enter into this world or to be made known. 
So the Christian God and the Muslim God have very different characteristics. They do different things. They offer different paths. Uh, the Christian God says, believe in him, follow him, and he will take our sins upon himself. The Muslim God gives us rules to follow and laws to complete in order for us to have a chance at earning his grace and mercy. These are two very different gods in the way they are taught. But thankfully, there is only one God. So, so if you had to boil down everything we've been saying over two evenings <laughs> into just three points to bear in the back of your mind, to use whenever you're asked this question about, isn't this cross a shameful idea? Isn't it cosmic child abuse and so on? I, I would go for these three personally. You may have different ideas, but work out your own three and stick with those. The first one I would, I would, would use would be God's love and God's wrath aren't just feelings. They are God's settled attitude towards certain things. God doesn't suddenly fall in love with us. He just loves us. It's just the way it is. We don't know why. It's certainly nothing that we deserve. But the love of God is settled in us. And God loves us. In the same way, God's wrath, God's anger, isn't suddenly falling out with people. You! You are going to die! It's not that way. God's wrath is his attitude towards anything that disfigures his creation and impairs people's lives and stops his creation being what he, was, he designed it to be. And God's wrath rests upon all injustice and wickedness. So it's not a case of God having barbaric feelings or something like that. It's a, simply a case of God's fixed attitude towards what's right and towards what's wrong and towards us. Second point is this, forgiveness always costs. People say, well, if God loves us so much, why doesn't he just let us off the hook? Why does he say, okay, I forgive you. I mean, I forgive my children, all sorts of things. You know, sometimes my workmates do the dirty on me, dishonest, and I forgive them. So if I can forgive people, why can't God do it? Well, for us, forgiveness is a choice. Will I forgive this person or will I not? God has to, <laughs> because his very nature is love. And because he loves us, he, he has to combine two things. First of all, forgiveness, and second, perfect justice. And he has to find a just way of doing it. He can't just let us off the hook. Otherwise, the whole of the universe's moral center falls into disrepair. The whole thing gets messed up. And God has to find a way of being just and yet the justifier. And this is exactly what he's done on the cross. And the third thing, of course, is a point we've been stressing all night, which is that Jesus is God, paying the price personally himself. It's not that Jesus is some bystander, but he is God. And in Jesus, the Godhead is saying to us, I love you, and I want you to come home like the prodigal. So those are the three points I would use. You might have better ideas. How about answering back that? Because that's the final thing, isn't it? We've talked about working on your return. And in the week of Wimbledon, I guess there's a certain sort of appropriateness of that. And uh, it's not just being able to answer back and send the ball back over the net. You've got to send it back in such a way that you win the point, haven't you? Not that it's a game we're playing with, with people or anything like that, but you want to not just stay on defensive all the time. You want them to see what Jesus is all about, and so you want to make points that will, will make some sense to them and take that argument forward from what you're talking about into something which potentially could help them to stumble upon the truth. What would you say? Well, you can work out what, how, what your comeback would be, but uh, I would uh, suggest uh, just three possibilities here, and uh, again, you may have far better ideas. The first thing I would want to say is, okay, so if you don't have the cross, if you don't have the atonement and the Christians believe in it, how else would you solve the problem of human evil? 
Is there a way that you could put the universe right? There's an awful lot that's wrong with God's creation. But if you were God, what would you do? If you just say, well, I would burn all of the wicked ones in hell, who are the wicked ones and who are the good ones? All of sin didn't fall in short of God's glory. So you're going to annihilate your whole creation. If you'd say, well, I'd just let everybody off the hook, then it would be five minutes before people were doing things that were much, much worse because they'd realise there was no way they were going to pay for it. How would you solve the problem of human evil other than getting somebody who could pay the price to pay the price in the place of those who ought to suffer? And how would it be fair for that person to be anybody other than you yourself? So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing I, I, I might think about as, as a return would be to say this. Listen, isn't it interesting that almost every other religion in the world says you have to do something yourself to get right with God? That's basically what Qureshi was talking about in that little quote, wasn't it? The fact that the God of Islam says you must do these things, you must live in this way, and then uh, you'll be accepted by me on Judgment Day. On the Judgment Day, you will have to walk across a narrow um, bridge that will lead you into paradise. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then as you walk across this narrow bridge, it will broaden out into a, a, a big uh, freeway and you can walk straight across it into, into, into paradise with no problem. <coughs> but if for some reason your wrong deeds outweigh your good ones, then it will narrow down to the breadth of a, a, a pinhead and you will fall off into the pit of hell. And that's the threat that Muslims have, have hanging over them until the moment the end of their life comes. What's good news, Christianity or Islam? And it's not just Islam. If you look at uh, the, the, the Buddhist Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, it's a recipe for, for making yourself a better person and after many, many incarnations, er perhaps reaching nirvana. If you look at uh, Judaism and the way in which the, 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 the early rabbis uh, fenced round the law by adding all sorts of commandments that are not there in the Old Testament, but which nonetheless they say God wants and you must keep. Again, it's a system of works. And almost every other religion, but you must do something. Why do you think Christianity is so different? Why is it that Christianity is the only one that says, there's nothing to do, it's all paid for already? And then the third thing I would, I would be uh, thinking about would be this. If the cross was just horrible torture, and here we come back to the day of Pentecost, don't we? If the cross was just horrible torture, why do you think the first Christians were so excited about it? Such a shameful thing in the Roman Empire. And yet from day one, from half an hour after the Holy Spirit has descended, the church is talking about the cross. And wherever you go around the world, you'll find Christian inscriptions from the early days. And the cross is all over everywhere. And things that remind you of the cross. One uh, uh, old uh, Christian habit was to put pelicans on the walls uh, as, as a drawing to remind them of the myth. It's not biologically true, but the myth that the pelican used to feed its children with its own blood. And that again is looking back to the cross and saying, look, Jesus feeds us with his own blood. By his own blood he bought us. And uh, uh, all sorts of early Christian symbols point in that direction from the very earliest days of the church. Now, what was it that made the Christians take a, a symbol of torture and disgrace and turn it into something they were so proud of? And Peter gives the answer, doesn't he, in his first sermon. It's the fact that death could not hold him. And it wasn't just the cross. It was the cross and then the resurrection. And when you look at the cross, the light of Jesus winning the victory, of coming to the end of his life and saying, it is 
finished. It's over. It's paid for. Then you begin to realise just what the cross is all about. Well, those are just some ideas. And Steve, no doubt you've got to... Uh, 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 well, I know you've got a song for us to finish with okay. and stuff like that. Well, whatever else you want to do, it's up to you, well, Sam. Your but uh, let's just finish by thanking God for what Jesus yeah. and his death on the cross has brought yeah. us into. Right, so, Steve, oh, oh, sorry. All right, let's just pray for a second then. Yeah, they all sing it too. So, Heavenly Father, um, we've been in the houses a bit tonight just trying to wrap up all of these arguments, and I pray that anything that is helpful will stick with us, and I pray that anything we can use will remember and take on and sharpen up and make our own so that we can be your witnesses in the most eloquent and, and convincing way that you're able to use us. We all have different backgrounds, personalities, characters, IQs, CVs, all that sort of stuff. And you want to use each of us in our individual way for your kingdom glory. And we pray that with some of these ideas, you'll help us be adequate to the questions we get asked, the objections we encounter. And we'll be able not just to answer things plausibly, but point people to Jesus in the way that's attractive. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.